Requesting connection. Established. Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for. Advice, technology, and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah. Live from Montella, Wisconsin, the Ask Noah show starts right now. This is the show where we came to do all the things on Linux they said couldn't be done and take your questions on how to do the same. My name's Noah. I am your host. Delighted to be here with you as another episode of the Ask Noah show kicks off this hour. Phone lines are open 855-450-NOAH, 855-450-6624. The email live at asknoahshow.com. So last week or the week before, we talked a little bit about photo management solutions. And I've talked a little bit about how my family is trying to get into or out of rather Google and have been looking at a number of different photo solutions. The leading photo solution that I I have been landing on so far was memories from Nextcloud. And my problem is I'm more of I'm more concentrated on the data itself. I'm not so concerned about the interface to interact with the data. So I mostly for me, I just want to be able to get the photos off of the phone and put them into a storage NAS and then I'll go view them however it is I want to view them. I have known works great for me. But what I'm finding is when I when what the process that has worked for me for over 20 years is I take the phone and I plug a USB cable in and I connect it to my laptop and lo and behold the photos pop up and everything comes off and that's just fine. But I'm finding that normal people read my wife and my kids don't want to do those kinds of things. They don't want to have to plug in a cable and mount a USB drive and then copy files from a DCIM folder over to a specified share and organize it. It's very complicated for people. And so when they're coming from things like Google Photos or when they're coming from things like the native photo app on their phone, it's problematic to say the least. And so joining me to kind of talk through this is once again, lead installer from Multispeed Technologies, Kenny Schmidt. Thanks for having me on the show. So, so my first question is, can you talk a little bit about what you have been using for photos? So for the longest time, I had just been using Google Photos as my photo solution, um, just out of the simple fact that it was what came with my phone and it automatically started backing stuff up. So I didn't really think much of it to start. As you... what. Talk a little bit about what your photo experience looked like. So you take a photo on your phone and you had Google Photos. What were some of the things that you liked about it? Why why up until recently would you have said Google Photos is the right solution for me? That's why you should use it. Absolutely, yeah. Google Photos honestly came down to it started with the simplicity of just it being on my phone, but it came down to it was a really good product. It did a really good job of going through and organizing all my photos. So like when you first open the app, there's a very nice gallery viewer um, organizing all the photos by date. You can grab the little side wheel and scroll down by month, year, and all those different things. So it makes it really intuitive to look through all your photos. It also has some really awesome features like being able to uh, look and see, uh, search for things by who's in the photo or what's in the photo. So um, say for example, you know, I could search for my dad's name and it would pull up all the photos of my dad. Or uh, I could say, show me all the photos of desks that I have if I took a photo of a desk or something. And it would go through and find those things for me. The last really big feature that I really loved about Google Photos was the sharing. The fact that you could go to the sharing tab, you could send 
photos to someone and they would essentially, if they also use Google Photos, it would just show up in their library. It would show up in like a little messaging tab. And that's just super convenient for me. So that was what I used for the longest time. As you went through your Google Photos experience, what what finally broke? Like, did did it stop working? Was there something that you were like, oh, this feature just isn't there anymore? Did it, I mean, did you all of a sudden become privacy? Con- I mean, what changed? Yeah, so for me, the biggest thing was uh, they have a limitation to how much storage you can use. So with Google Photos, you get 15 gigabytes for free. Then past that, you have to pay for it. And I'm stubborn and cheap. So I don't like buying stuff. And I've always... Uh, I've worked in the open source community and doing a bunch of the stuff for a long time, so it's been something that kind of uh, I've wanted to do, but I've never had the time to getting around to doing, and it hadn't really been a problem because I hadn't used up my storage yet, so I said, I'll kick that can down the road till it hits the 15 gigs, and then I'll have to figure out what to do. Um, and I ran down that road of deleting some photos off or clearing some space up, and I got to a point finally where I was like, you know what, I just can't do this anymore. I need the photos that are on my account at this point, so I need to find a solution, and that's where I started looking at other solutions. So part of it was the ability to do the interface and browse the photos and share photos. But then it sounds like the other part is you're relying on Google to deal with the backup and final storage of them so that you didn't lose any of them. So we're really trying to accomplish three things. We're trying to have the ability to view, explore, and really, I guess, if I were to put a word to it, make discoverable photos, right? Like you've taken all these photos, but when you get thousands of them, like like you say, how do I find the photo of my dad? How do I find the photo of that one desk that I found at that one store that one time? So there's the discoverability aspect and then there's the data integrity aspect you want to keep those photos so you have these requirements laid out can you talk a little bit about what solutions well first of all i want to ask this did you consider just paying google for storage i mean they offer more than 15 gigs i know that you said you know you're cheap but at the same time it's not a lot of money to spend to buy google photos why not go that route yeah, so I actually looked into that route a little bit, and I got to the point where I, I had already owned the hard drives and the equipment, because I have a home infrastructure. I currently am running a movie server at my house, so I've already paid a lot of the upfront cost to be able to store and host things, so that was where I really had that chip on my shoulder of like, ah, I just don't want to spend a ton of money for a service when I have the capabilities to do it myself. I just need the right puzzle piece service that can do the same things that I'm, I'm already relying on. So you start looking and saying, hey, I I can do this myself. I could own my own data. I could leverage technology to my advantage. So you start looking out, out uh, you know, in the world for solutions. Undoubtedly, you came across NextCloud Memories. Undoubtedly, you came ac- across, you know, the Picasso's of the world. And um, there's there's another one that name escapes me that that uh, is a self-hosted one. What are some of the products that you looked at and what did you like about them and where did they kind of fall short? Absolutely. So there was a whole bunch of ones that I tried. There was um, Nextcloud Memories, as you mentioned. I looked into that, uh, and I liked it because I do have a Nextcloud instance. But their mobile app was nice, but it just didn't have the pristine finish that I really wanted. In that, just I'm a UI guy. I love a really nice quality UI where everything's uh, where you expect it to be and user intuitive. Um, so. Nextcloud Memories was close. Their desktop UI was very good, um, but their mobile was just a little lacking. Um, and I looked at a couple other ones. Uh, someone had mentioned PyWego, but after looking at that, it looked like it was more of like a um, 
if you're doing like photos like as a photographer and then you're presenting like a gallery to someone versus like an actual uh, independent like personal uh, photo storage and, and gallery viewer. Um, there was um, one other one that starts with a P- uh, photo prism was another one that I looked at. They have a mobile uploader, but they didn't have a mobile viewer. And a lot of the times when I'm trying to look for a photo, I'm on my phone and I'm out in public. I'm trying to show someone something, showing, showing them a photo of my dog or something along those lines. Um, so for me, after trying a whole bunch of different ones, and, and there's more of them than just that. I, there was quite a lot of them. I actually found at one point a GitLab page that basically went through uh, and had a giant chart that showed all the features that they had and what all of the different options checked off. Um, so I went through and, and looked at that and came down to the solution of image at the end of the day was what I found that I really liked. So image is it has a fascinating backstory behind this project. So this is an electrical engineer and he has a hobby for creating and fixing problems. And so he's sitting with his wife and they just have a new baby and they're sitting there and they're they're going through. And he's always asking his wife, like, hey, what can I build for you? I, I can fix things. Would you like me to electrical engineer you something? Would you like me to build you something? No, 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 no. I just really need you to take out the trash. I need you to make the dinner, that sort of thing. So finally, they get to the point. They're sitting there. And, she, and his wife is thinking to herself, self, I have all these photos of my new baby. And I don't have a good way to view them and share them. And they're all going up to the cloud and all the rest of it. Like, maybe this is something my electrical engineer husband could fix. So she says, you want to build me something? Build me the best photo app Ever. And so he starts down that project. And to in, to your credit, like you'd actually looked into this, what, like a year or so ago and tried image and it just wasn't quite there. It was They were getting places and they had a great roadmap, but they weren't quite there. And so last week, the week before you look again and totally different story. What did you find? Absolutely. So when I first started uh, trying out Image, it was version 1.25 or something like that. It was a very early version and actually said in the release version, uh, beta or alpha or some sort of pre-release version. Um, so to their credit, they just weren't ready to be uh, a product that relies on it. And right at the top of their page at that point, they still had a, a message basically saying, hey, this is not a primary way to back up photos. Um, so at that time, my confidence in the project just wasn't ready yet because I knew they weren't even ready in it yet. Um, but now they've moved uh, up in versions obviously and they've gone to a proper production release version with image and it has come a long way can you talk a little bit about what somebody would expect from image and specifically why you chose it why would you tell somebody this is the perfect replacement for google photos absolutely so since it was developed with like trying to be the a similar replacement to a service like that. It's actually going, it's not trying to be uh, something else. It's not trying to be just a viewer or just a backup sync client. It kind of tries to do an all-in-one service and it does all of them exceptionally well. So it hits all the original checkboxes that I talked about Google hitting in the first place and why I wanted to switch from Google to something like this. It has the beautiful gallery viewer that's organized by dates and it has the nice grid of photos that you can go through and see. It has the automatic syncing, backing up, taking the photos, saying, telling it, hey, here's all the libraries on my phone. I want these ones to go up to my server instance that I host at home. It has the ability to go and look in the search tab where you can search for people, places, things. Um, It has the sharing, which sharing is done a little bit differently, but I actually really like how they've done the sharing implementation in image. So the way Google's uh, image sharing thing has done is if you wanted to save them to your library, you had to have an account and then you would share it to someone's Google account and then they would they could have the little option to hit the save to account. 
whereas image is done you can do that if you would like however it has the more default option of i just send a link to i select the the photos that i want or the album that i want to send to someone i share that album and it shows it sends as a link to the person that i want to send it to so all i have to do is some sort of way to message them that link once they have that link, they can go in, view all the photos with their beautiful desktop web UI or their mobile UI, and then they can go in and download as would like. And it's just simply a stand-in solution for what I already had. It really did a nice job of touching on all those features that I had already came to love with my previous service and brought them to an open source and FOSS solution. What are some of the things that you like better? So, for example, you know, in the grid layout, do the is is it all exactly the same, or are there some things that you look at and you're like, actually, you know, I wouldn't have pegged this as something that I went out looking for, but now that I see it side by side, you know, maybe this is a little bit better than that, or this is a little bit better of an implementation than that. Absolutely. So I was actually just demoing this to a friend yesterday um, where I had literally taken both of my photo apps that I had image and Google photos and I pulled them up side by side to kind of show like they're very similar, um, but they do have a couple nice little things that stand out to me. So the first thing that I noticed is inside of my previous uh, photo service app at the very top, it would try to force like a bunch of like memories and stuff that I wouldn't care about. It was like, it would say, or like, here's a stylized photo. And like, honestly, if I'm going to edit a photo, I'd rather do that myself. I'm a part, if I know how to host an image service, I'm probably able to do some basic edits to a photo. Um, so for me, I had the capabilities to do all that stuff. So it just felt like a bunch of clutter and got in the way. The other thing that I really appreciate about image is because it's a self-hosted project and not backed by a large corporation, is they're not constantly trying to sell you something. Google Photos, inside of their app, they are constantly pushing to sell you a photo book or a t-shirt with a photo on it or whatever. I, I, I don't even look at the store anymore because it's gotten pushed at me so many times, I just, I'm not interested. Um, and Image just simply doesn't have that stuff. It, it strips that stuff away and it allows you to just enjoy looking at your photos and not be marketed to the entire time you're trying to use your phone to look at photos or your desktop to look at photos. So somebody is listening to this and they're thinking to themselves, well, this sounds great, Kenny. But you know what the reality is? This is going to be too much work to get set up. I, it's going to, I mean, what are the requirements and what are the steps to get image from a, hey, this is a great idea. I'd like to have a photo solution to I have a photo solution. Absolutely. So I was actually just joking with my good buddy the other day about this. So it's really like on their actual documentation from image, it's like seven steps or something like that. And all the steps are very simple steps, like to be including, uh, run the Docker uh, compose file. So literally just a single uh, command to download the file and then run the file. Once you have it running, image is set up. So that's that's really it for the setup. And then the other six steps are log into the image, create a user, start uploading photos, et cetera, et cetera. How to use a photo app, which if you want a photo app, you probably know how to use a photo app. Um, so really, they've done a fantastic job of simplifying this. They have a couple different options on their site. The one I decided to go with for deployment was Docker. They had, uh, I believe they had a, a setup script. They also had like a Kubernetes thing. Um, so there's, I'd highly encourage you guys to go through uh, and look at Image's site to see their documentation on implementation, but they've made it really quite simple um, to deploy uh, Image.
You can learn more about Image at I-M-M-I-C-H dot app. That's I-M-M-I-C-H dot app. The self-hosted backup solution for photos, video, and on mobile devices. Hey, Kenny Schmidt, lead installer for UltraSpeed Technologies. I appreciate you taking the time for joining us. We'll get you back in the program soon. Absolutely. Thank you very much for having me on. From the Linux Newswire Newsroom, this is the Week in Review with JT. For the week of April 30th, 2023, here's the Linux and open source news. VMware has released version 5 of its minimal Linux container host called Photon OS. GNOME 44.1 has been released with improved screencast support, quick settings, background apps, and more. OpenRazor, an open source driver and user space daemon to control Razor devices on Linux, has just released version 3.6. The open source DAW Ardor has released version 7.4 with a lot of improvements and bug fixes. The Nitrix team has released version 2.8, which includes the 6.2.13 kernel, Plasma 5.27.4, and Waydroid by default. The Linux Foundation has released Dentos 3.0, a switch dev-based network operating system built on top of Open Network Linux. Debian has released its seventh point updates to Bullseye. Josh Strobel, the budgie desktop developer, has proposed Fedora Onyx, a new Fedora immutable variant alongside Silverblue and Kinoite. Earlier this month, IBM has purchased Ahana Cloud Inc., a Presto database SaaS vendor. This grows IBM's open source presence and provides a data lake product for its enterprise customers. The purchase also makes IBM a member of the Presto Foundation, a Linux Foundation community that oversees software development while providing infrastructure and other services. GM is joining the Brussels-based Eclipse Foundation, which describes itself as the world's largest open source foundation and GM has created its own open-source software protocol that it wants its competitors in the auto market to use. In security news, GitHub has announced that its private vulnerability reporting feature for open-source repositories is now available to all project owners. And a new ransomware binary targeting Linux systems has been attributed to the ransomware-as-a-service RTM group. Security researchers at Uptix have said that this is the first time the group has created a Linux binary and that its locker ransomware infects Linux, NAS, and ESXi hosts and appears to be inspired by the source code from the leaked Baduck ransomware. And in AI news, researchers at the Tsinghua University in China have worked on developing the Chat GLM series of models that have comparable performance to other models such as GPT-3 and Bloom, but are open source. And Arise AI, a California-headquartered company providing machine learning observability capabilities, has announced Phoenix, an open source library to monitor large language models for hallucinations. We get questions all the time into the program. How do I better my skills? How do I practice and get better or learn new things? And there is a website called OverTheWire.org, and they host a series of what they call war games. And I came across it earlier this week, and I have to tell you, I was blown away. It gives you the opportunity to learn and to practice concepts in real life time in real life there's so many different sites or different experiences that have emulators and things that try to get you into or try to demonstrate what it might be like to do things in real life and what over the wire does is they use actual machines and you're doing it from a a real life scenario and so it's set up like a typical video game and so you move from one level to the other as you achieve the objectives you're able to move from level one to level two and and so on so forth as you might expect each level gets a little 
more difficult and adds a little bit more skill. So it's this, it gives you the easy wins initially so that you're not off put by getting started, but then you have the opportunity to grow. And again, much of what I like about the Red Hat exams is what appeals to me of over the wire and that it's all real life stuff. It isn't based off of some emulator or somebody's best idea of what to do. It's you're actually doing the work. It's real hands on skills. And so the exact same skill set that you're demonstrating in these war games are the exact same skill set that you can break out after you leave the war game to go do real life work. And it's what's makes the Red Hat exams so valuable to me when people sit in my office and interview. And it's what makes this site so valuable to me in the way of learning skills. So the first level or the, the first game that they recommend is, uh, is, is pretty basic. And essentially what it does is it starts with, it starts off with SSH. And so if you already know how to SSH into a box, you're already at level one. But if you don't, they give you some links and resources so that you can learn. What is SSH? What does it do? How does it work? Why is it beneficial? And where would you use uh, this sort of skill or this sort of uh, this sort of tool? Once you understand what SSH is and how to use it, or if you already do, then you're on a real terminal. You're on your actual desktop and you're performing a series of tasks. And so tomorrow, when you need to SSH into a box for real, either for work or because you're trying to do it for fun in your home lab, it's the exact same process. It's the exact same set of steps. So you're, you're, you're banking real skills. And they have a collection of games. Bandit is the first one that they start with. And it starts off very simple. Again, the first goal is to SSH into another box. Pretty simple task. Most of us have that down. And so you make an SSH connection to a computer. They give you the host name, they give you the username, and they give you the port number. And so most people would be able to probably do that right off the bat. But again, if you didn't, they have links to, hey, here's how you make an SSH connection with using the TACP to specify the port number that you want to do. And so you'd SSH into bandit.labs.overthewire.org. And they give you the username and password, and so you're able to successfully make a connection. Great. Awesome. So now I click on level one, and it gives me the next level in the series. And so they have links to learn about the technology that you're going to use in the next level. And so you read through that and get an idea of like, okay, here are the, here are the tasks that I'm going to perform. And you get into the first box, and they'll say something like, okay, this is a launching point. So now we want you to get into Bandit 1. And so whereas before they gave you the entire host name, Bandit0.labs.overthewire.org, now they just tell you, get into Bandit 1. And it's upon you to make the connection that, okay, if Bandit, if, if I was SSHing into a host name Bandit 0 and the host name is Bandit0.labs.overthewire.org, I guess if I'm going to SSH into Bandit 1, it would probably be Bandit1.labs.overthewire.org. And sure enough, you do that and it asks you for a password. Well, where's the password? Well, it turns out the password is on the first box in a file called README. So they give you little hints, like they'll say, the password is located on the first level box and they'll say things like commands you might want to use ls dr you know and they'll they'll list all of the commands that that you'll need to be able to ascertain that hey there's a file in here called readme and if i cat that file out it has a random string of numbers and letters i wonder what that is oh that's the password for bandit 1 then you're able to get to level 1 and so on and so forth and so they and they move you through the process and it goes from level one to like 26. And that's just the first game, which is the one that I had run. But they have a whole list of war games on their site that you can play. The other thing is it's it's novel. So the you're getting extensive experience on real infrastructures. And I think 
that is a challenging thing to do because on one hand, it's very expensive to host real infrastructure and it is somewhat dangerous to open it up to people and let them use it. And then you have to provide some sort of security apparatus to lock it down so that it's not abused. And it's much easier to do all of those things if you just emulate it in a web browser. And the vast majority of sites that want to do stuff like this would just say, if I'm teaching somebody how to SSH in, what difference does it make if I just take the actual commands that you would run and just run them inside of a little web browser thing? And that's great. And it also is a little bit easier to onboard people because you don't need to understand anything in the way of how do I open a terminal? How do I start SSH? What operating system do you need to run? None of that. It all just runs inside of the browser. That's great. But it doesn't work that way in real life. In real life, when somebody sends you an email and says, hey, could you SSH into this box? Here's the host name, the username, and password, and I need you to get in and fix it. They don't have like a cute little web UI that you click on a link and then it drops down with the little terminal right in the web UI and you click on it. That's not real life. And so it doesn't, it doesn't equate to real skills. The other thing is it doesn't allow you to use the tools that you want to use to do things the way you want to do them. If you are if you use the built-in terminal application, that's great. If you use a drop-down terminal like Yakwake, that's great. If you use something like Terminator, where it will split the terminals into different screens, or you're using a tiling desktop manager, some of those things are the kinds of things that as you as you go as you step through and you're working on these things, you want to use the tools that you want to use. And so over the wire allows you to do those things. And so it allows you to use your setup the way that your environment is set up. And so if you use Terminator, great. If you use Yakwake, great. Whatever you would do in the field, whatever you do in real life, you're able to do in over the labs. And then the progression to other levels. So as you progress through the levels, it gets more and more complicated, but there's always a real world scenario. I've, I, I went through a number of the levels. I didn't do all of them, but I went through a number of them and I never found one that was like, okay, this is just there to demonstrate like how to do a thing. There's no real value in it. There have absolutely been times that the only thing I've done in a box is SSHed in, looked at what files are there and catted one of them out. That happens not terribly infrequently and all of the their levels are set up uh when you get to the highest level that i got to they got to the point where they were doing a git repository and they say there's a git repository at and then they give you know banded 27 dash git at localhost blah 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 and they say we want you to log in to this git repository and we want you to use this username and then we want you to clone that git repository and then you do that and again, if you didn't understand, how do I clone a Git repository? What is Git? How, do I, how does all of that work? They have links for you. They'll explain it all. And it helps you identify your knowledge gaps. So as you're stepping through things, you might start with the SSH one and go, well, that's no big deal. I SSH, I know how to do that. I do that every day. No problem. And you're able to get through that. But then you get to one of the other levels, like, for example, Maybe you weren't familiar with how to change your shell. You've always used bin bash, and so that's what you're used to, and you know all of the commands. In fact, me just saying bin bash, you're thinking to yourself, there are other shells other than bash? I didn't know that. So they offer the opportunity to say, you know, here's a shell. One of the levels is here's a shell, and it's not bin bash. It's something else. Find out what that shell is, find out how it works, and then find out how to break out of it. And again, they give you the commands. So you're probably going to need SSH, cat, more, vi, ls, uh, you know, ID, PWD, so on and so forth. And they give you all of those commands and you're able to learn. So you're able to identify your knowledge gaps and say, you know, I don't actually know how to get out of a shell if I was l dropped into something other than bin bash and I wouldn't know how to change it. So 
then you have the opportunity to go explore and say, okay, I'm going to learn a little bit more about that. Anyway, it's ap- I'm absolutely over the moon about this. It's the, the website is overthewire.org. You can learn more by going to overthewire.org. Just a fantastic collection of tools to help you learn and grow your real Linux skills, providing real opportunities with actual skills that will translate into the real world. So you can take these things, you can learn those skills, you can build confidence in those skills. And I went over just one of the games they have. They have probably seven or eight different games, uh, different war games that you can play. All of them revolve around the same idea, that it is a practical set of skills that you can employ in the field and learn things. And the other thing that I've started doing is as I find things in the field that I come across and I'm like, hey, I wonder how that works or I wonder how I would do that. Typically, I'd go back and look up an answer and get the the thing done right then and there. But I've started to kind of make notes for myself like I'm going to go back and look and see if I can find a war game on over the wire that will help me hone that skill in a little bit further. There are a number of different operating systems that are leveraging container technology to do a number of cool things. So we talked a few weeks ago about Vanilla OS and what they were doing with Vanilla OS is largely to use containers to emulate different distros so that regardless of where you're looking for a particular package, sometimes a package is only released for Ubuntu or sometimes it's only released for Fedora or sometimes it's only released for Arch. And the idea behind, uh, these sorts of distros are they allow you to pull the package from wherever is convenient because the distro itself can run inside of a container. You are presented to the user as one cohesive operating system, but you have the ability to run packages from any of the distros that you might want to use. Well, another operating system that takes a similar approach is blend OS and blend OS two is here and upon us. And so uh, Rudra Srawat, I believe is is the name, announced the release and general availability of BlendOS 2. And this is the second major release of this immutable operating system that, again, has this idea of leveraging container technologies to get you the software that you need with one cohesive interface. And so it's similar to vanilla OS in that they're they're able to run distros like Fedora, Arch, or Ubuntu. And regardless of which one of those three you want or which one of those three you're looking for software from, you're able to leverage the container technology to get the packages that are available for those distros. And so if you're looking for packages in Arch, if you're looking for packages in Fedora or Ubuntu, they're all available. With the latest version, they've added a new priority-based system that puts the user in control of the containerized software. So one of the problems that you run into when you start approaching this idea of well, we'll take packages from any of the three distros. Well, what happens when there's a package that's available in two or more of them? Now you have a problem because you're no longer unique. If you're looking for a package, how would you know which one to pull from? Now, the knee-jerk reaction might be, well, I don't really care, Noah, which package I pull from. If I want to run Audacity, I don't really care if it comes from the Arch land, if it comes from the Fedora land, or if it comes from the Ubuntu land. I just want to launch Audacity. But some users will care because they'll either want the latest version or they'll want the one that has been most tested or relies on a particular library, these sorts of things. And so the latest version of BlendOS, they allow you to do that. Additionally, they've added Android app support. And this is particularly exciting for me because the Android marketplace in some ways is larger than 
the traditional Linux app infrastructure. And as more and more businesses and more and more companies and more and more environments move towards a mobile centric world, this enables us to still run Linux, still run open source technology, but take advantage of some of those uh, available platforms. And so they're using this thanks to an open source container based solution running the Android operating system inside of the 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 Linux box. And it's a project called Waydroid. And this has largely replaced Anbox in a lot of circles for emulating Android on a Linux box. And so Waydroid uh, does it very well and is being used by a number of different projects to include Blend OS. And they allow you to pull apps now from the Android operating system. And so Android apps can easily be installed from the graphical stores like the Aurora store or F-Droid. Um, but BlendOS 2 also allows you to use these Android apps alongside native Linux applications. And so now you can run Inkscape and your bank application uh, all on one operating system. Additionally, the Android apps, um, they allow you to install web apps or progressive web apps known as PWAs. And this is available from Arch Linux's software repository, as well as being able to build from the repos from the AUR. And so you're able to build those packages. And with this particular release, the devs also are trying to stay a step ahead of their competition and they developed their own distro box. And this is an implementation using Podman for managing the OCI compliant containers and pods, which allows them to implement unique features. And you're only going to find those available in blend OS too. So if you haven't checked out blend OS or vanilla OS, or but there's a couple of them that are doing it. I invite you to do that. Check out blend OS. They have the latest ISOs available for download. You can download them and you can check them out. Uh, largely, I think this is the direction that so local software is likely to go because as we, most people, as they operate their machine or they're operating their computer, they're not really looking for, they don't have a particular preference on, I want it to run this way, I want it to run that way. A lot of people make their distro choice based on the software availability and the stability that they're looking for. And so if they say, hey, I tried Ubuntu, but you know, the problem was I couldn't get this app or I couldn't get that app or I, it was available, but it wasn't the latest version and so it didn't work. That's a lot of times the rationale you hear for people moving towards Arch. And of course, on the other end of the spectrum, oftentimes you'll have somebody that's running Arch and it works nine out of 10 times, but they'll go to run a specific app or they'll go to run a particular package and oh, well, that's not working. I think just a few weeks ago, I was talking with Steve and he was having an issue where there was a app that he wanted to run in Arch, but it relied on a library that I think he had said that he had he had messed around with. And so then that app wouldn't launch or wouldn't run or something to that effect. Well, a lot of in a lot of ways, these sorts of distributions, these cohesive distributions that rely on containers to spin up the particular distro that you're looking for, and then giving you access to the package set that you're looking for. Do, fixes a lot of these problems because it allows you to not be afraid of your system. It allows you to dig in and play with stuff. And still, when you're looking for a particular piece of software, you're going to be able to run it. And it kind of prevents you from hurting yourself because everything is at the end of the day inside of a little container. And so it's not really exposed. And so if changing one thing or messing with one thing doesn't necessarily affect another. I'd invite you to check out Blend OS. You can learn more. We'll have links in the show notes available at podcast.asknoahshow.com. Ardour 7.4 is here. After more than two months, uh, Ardour 7.3 
uh, was released and introduces support for what they're calling MIDI subgroups and buses. And so this is something that some of the larger DAWs have had for a while. And I had a chance to touch base with a, a buddy of mine who does professional recording inside of a studio outside of Minneapolis and talk to him to learn a little bit more about how these buses work and how they're used in uh, in tra- traditional recording. Um, they also have support for a Lua DSP processor, which downmixes 5.1 uh, audio down to just a stereo pair and a volume control for a clip picker. And there's also a new option that lets you choose a neutral color for tracks and buses, as well as some new preferences for the items of PPQN values exported to MIDI files. There is increased controller support. So one of the things that, as I was talking with my friend, what they look for when they're looking at DAWs and they're evaluating and using them is very rarely do they do anything with a keyboard and mouse. Almost always they have some sort of physical control surface that they're using. And oftentimes they have, uh, there are companies that make the uh, that that traditionally made sound consoles that they use to take the audio in those companies have now largely switched to they still make sound consoles but they've also switched to making uh little control surfaces that they use to control the DAW because that's more common instead of bringing the sound into a one big mixer you're actually bringing it into individual interfaces and bringing it into as separate tracks inside of the DAW and so controller support is a really important part of using a DAW if you're doing it with any sort of professional application and they added support for the fader 8 controller Um, it also shows the parameters for the formatted plugins so it no longer duplicates the makeup control and they've also introduced support for x-touch controller which shows now track colors and Ableton push to controller, which sends modulation while holding the shift so that you can get the touch strip instead of having to do the pitch bend. They provided some updates to the VST plugin, uh, VST3 specifically, and that now correctly configures stereo plugins for mono tracks as well as the skip redundant parameter changes and notifies the user when the plugin parameter names change. Uh, there is increased support for VST2 plugins, and this has been improved by addressing a crash that occurred when dragging VST pr- presets to the sidebar a track um, Arduer 7.4 improves the naming tooltips for the color palette to improve the MIDI input followers as well as obeying the selection property on the track group. So I sent a link to Arduer to a friend of mine who, again, uses DAW every day uh, in his professional life. And I asked him, I said, can you look at this and can you take some of the VSTs that you use inside of your day-to-day DAW and can you tell me how they work with our doer, how they, how they work. And if you have one of these control surfaces, can you try that and tell me how it kind of compares? So I'll try and keep my, my finger on the pulse of, of what's going on. DAW is one of those things where I have a, an avid interest in music, but I don't do a lot of musical style recording or I don't do a lot of studio recording in that way as all of my stuff is all talk content or podcasting radio, that sort of stuff. So I don't have a lot of experience in this area. It's always something I've kind of played with or always kind of tangentially been involved with, um, but don't know a whole lot about the specific requirements. Ardour is interesting to me primarily because from the people that have used it, they tell me that they have implemented a lot of the features that the big name DAWs are using and it's rapidly becoming a a real suitable replacement. And so in the same way that Caden Live has replaced a lot of the video editors and, and now feature for feature 
carries a lot of the weight that maybe even four or five years ago we would have said, eh, maybe it's not quite there yet. Ardour seems to be getting there. And so continuing to watch it, continuing to follow it along, if you haven't played with it, it's an absolutely fantastic program for getting if you do any sort of music recording or music production, absolutely fantastic program to, to do that. And again, the support for those VSTs, you talk to any musician and they will tell you the DAW is just the tool to, to, to process the audio or to, to work with the audio. The real money is in their VSTs. They have thousands upon thousands of dollars invested in these plugins to model real life instruments and real life sounds and real life effects and, and real life processing and, a lot of the processor units that that they're modeled that these VSTs are modeled after are thousands and thousands of dollars, and some of them aren't even made anymore. And so, some of the old time studios in Nashville, for example, will have like racks and racks and racks of these processors to get that sound, that authentic, you know, vintage sound or that authentic sound that you're looking for. VSTs have largely been able to replace that because they're able to take what the processor is doing to the sound and they're able to replicate that. And once it's a VST, it becomes more distributable and and then it becomes scalable because you can put it into any modern workflow. So again, our Doer 7.4 is out. If you haven't checked it out, I invite you to do so. Well, again, we'll have links for you in the show notes podcast.asknoahshow.com. GPT for all. So this is a locally running AI. They call it AI. I'll get into that in a second. They, they call it an AI chat application powered by the GPT for all dash J Apache two licensed chatbot. And so this software lets you to communicate with a large language model or an LLM to get helpful answers, insight and suggestions. So undoubtedly, if unless you're living under a rock, you've heard of chat GPT and it's kind of taken the world by storm. Now I, I would start by telling you this. I would say that I am, I get a little frustrated when I, I keep seeing this identified as AI. I really, I struggle with that because I don't really see it as AI. I see it more as speech modeling more than AI. It's not really making decisions, right? It's not really doing something new. It can write code. Sure. But the code <laughs> And it passes a syntax checker. That's fine. But it's not necessarily doing something new. It's can't tell it like I want this program and it goes out and writes the, the code to make the program. A human still has to do some of those things. So I really struggle with this identification of AI. But hey, if chat, if chat GPT gets the AI title, I guess. GPT for all can get the title as well. So this is an open source model and it runs locally on your computer with your CPU, doesn't require an internet connection and no chat data is sent to external services. Now, full disclosure, I've not tried this myself. So one thing I can tell you is when I was chatting with some of the people that, that, uh, that worked with uh, chat GPT and, and had kind of looked into it a little bit more, I understand that training the, 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 the model itself is like a hundred thousand dollars. And then they spend a few hundred thousand dollars every few days just to run a trained model on their system. So it's incredibly expensive in the way of processing power and compute power that's required to power that model. So I would absolutely not say go to, you know, GPT for all.io and download it and expect the exact same experience that you had with chat GPT. I think there's going to be a little bit of a difference there. But where I think there's incredible value here is one, it's very easy to get up and running. You can simply W get the installer file, you change it to add the executable flag, and then you run the, the installer and then there's your software. But the, 
the, and, the, and so you're able to get some hands-on experience and kind of play with it and kind of experience what it's like to have to interact with one of these language model chatbots. But the other thing is, and this is where I think the real value for stuff like this is, the job market around this stuff is exploding. There are so you've got two sides. You've got the people that are really interested in the technical side that are learning more and pushing uh, these sorts of technologies to do more. That's great. But then on the other side, you have the people that they're not terribly well educated. They just know that, oh, GPT is the next big thing, that sort of attitude. And because of that, companies are doubling down. Can we get this stuff integrated into our customer support? Can we get this stuff integrated into our workflow or overview? Can we get this stuff doing overview to catch errors or problems or checking the language before things go out. There was a story I saw a a therapy um a therapy online therapy consulting company was using the GPT model to answer questions. Now all of the responses from from these therapists were still monitored by a human. So the computer model was generating the responses to these people and then they sent them out human reads it double checks like yeah that's what i want to send and then they send it back out and they were providing support to people who were struggling with mental crisis and the it was it was unethical insofar as the people weren't aware that they were interacting with a gp with a with a a computerized bot and i think that is problematic for a whole host of reasons and that's part of why it made national news but the 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 thing that stood out to me was when they were surveyed and they said, what did you think of our support? What did you think of the answers that you were given? How was this therapy session? More people found satisfaction interacting with the artificial chatbot than with the real human. They got the, the, the chatbot got better reviews than the people that were actually trained to do it. So there is there is there's no denying that there is tremendous value in this technology and it can do a lot to help us. We just, I think, a need to frame it with the right frame of mind insofar as this is what it is and this is what it isn't use technically correct terms again i struggle with this idea of calling this ai but things like gpt for all allow you if you have an idea and say you know what i think i could do i could implement this here well now you have the opportunity to run this without spending hundreds of thousands of dollars you can spin this up on your own machine and you can try some of these things out and see how your idea works and see how this works and then once even if all you did was kind of get the groundwork laid and then you go back and say okay now i want to take this you know, into full production, you might go with a different model, you might use a, a different chatbot, but this at least lets you get your hands on to play with it. And so in the same way, the Raspberry Pi was so pivotal by way of allowing people to explore and engage technology in a way that just wasn't possible before. I think things like GPT for all will do the same thing. So you can learn more at GPT for That's GPT for the number four all dot IO. We'll have links for you in the show notes. Uh, you can find those at podcast.asknoahshow.com. But get your hands on it. Get some experience. Super helpful. There is an act out in the EU. So this is the EU CRA or Cyber Resilience Act. And it's a legislative proposal, excuse me, proposal by the European Commission to protect consumers from cybercrime and interoperability secure, by, by incorporating security into the product design. So even if you don't live in the EU, you're like, be affected by this and my best example of that is look at gpdr even though it's not technically enforced in the united states all of us who live in the united states at some point or another have been subjected to the little pop-up saying here's how we collect your data and how we use cookies and what if anything do you want to do about it and i think there's a lot of people that just click the yeah accept all and then you move on you go back about your day people like me 
a little more privacy conscious, I absolutely click into the customize option, toggle essential only, and then click save. And that removes their ability to collect anything other than what's absolutely essential for me to use their site. That's only available to me as a U.S. citizen because the companies who are doing this in the EU aren't going to have their site operate one way in the U.S. and a different way in the EU. So they have to conform to these requirements. So I, as a U.S. citizen, get benefit from the great work that's been done by the GPDR. Well, this Cyber Resiliency Act is not a good thing. And I don't think this is going to do things, uh, good things for the technical community, but I think we're likely to be impacted by it in the U.S. as well as those in the EU. So the requirement is that organizations self-certify their conformity to this act. And this is a real core of a problem because it's difficult to understand how this is going to affect open source. It's, it's a pretty straightforward process when you have a software company that makes money by selling software and you just add requirements saying, hey, if you're going to sell software, here's the requirements that you have to check off. The problem is, let's say you create a little C++ program for personal usage. You're not a business. You don't make any money. You just publish your program up on GitHub and you throw an open source license on it because you want to share your work. And Noah told you in your favorite podcast that, hey, you should uh, leverage technology to its full potential. And the way to do that is doing that with open source. So all of that's great, but another developer is making a huge project and they want to incorporate your little project in their bigger project. And so they take your code, which is perfectly fine, and they include your code, which is not only permitted, it's often encouraged because, again, all ships, rising tides, right? Open source. That's why we do what we do. So the issue becomes when the larger project experiences an issue that re results in a data link. It turns out your code for your tiny little hobby project was the crux of the issue. And so under this new law, even though it's a charitable hobby project, and even though it didn't bring you any money, you're responsible for the problem and you're left holding the bag. And so then they come after you and they say, hey, you owe us X amount of money. And if different people contributed to your code, the problem is considerably more complicated because now was the breach brought on by your code or the code of other developers or who really owns the problem? It's complicated, to say the least. And so it's hugely problematic. There's likely to be an exemption for hobby projects, and I think that's decent. But the problem is hobby projects oftentimes turn in to real projects. Additionally, the majority of the software that is comes from hobbyists isn't that that isn't where the majority of open source software comes from a lot of times it comes from some sort of entity or some sort of uh, uh, some sort of you know foundation that produces it and it's not really it, they produce it for commercial availability or they're funded from donations these sorts of things and so they say that they recognize the 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 the, the need to safeguard customer system, systems and cybersecurity flaws and all the rest of it but the reality is if you can't mitigate those liabilities, then the project would conceivably have to discontinue to avoid being held responsible because it adds a tremendous amount of cost to mitigate that new liability. That liability is created because in order to be in conformance with this act, you would have to know that your project meets all of these standards. And of course, that you're going to have to pay somebody to do that. So not a real fan of this act. Again, you can read the details at podcast.asknoahshow.com. The music in our ears means we're out of time. I thank you for joining us. We record the show every Tuesday at 6 p.m. Central. It's live. You can get the show notes at podcast.asknoshow. To get the latest, follow us on Twitter. I'm at Colonel Linux. He's at Linux Ovens. The show at Ask Noah Show. 
We're back next Tuesday at 6 p.m. Central with more Linux and open source content. We'll see you next week.